This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress. Entries are now open for the 2021 English Select Yearling Sales Series. The series will again comprise five sales. Classic, Premier, Easter, Gold and the Hunter Thoroughbred Breeders Association May Yearling Sale to be held at Riverside in Sydney and Oaklands Junction in Melbourne. Each of the three primary sales, Classic, Premier and Easter, will retain their regular places on the sales calendar. Following its success this year, the Scone sales will be moved permanently to Riverside on May 2nd and May 3rd and will be rebranded the HTBA Yearling Sale. The Gull Sale in Melbourne will be held on May 16th. To discuss the placement of your yearlings, contact a member of the English Bloodstock team. It's hard to believe it's four years since Warwick Hales relinquished his trainer's licence and slipped quietly from view after a 42-year career which brought him hundreds of winners, including several at stakes level. Warwick won three Group 1s with two horses which had been spurned in the sail ring. One was a small and weedy beast, the other gangly and awkward, but the skilful horseman was able to take them to racing's biggest stage. At the time of his retirement, Warwick had cut back to a handful of horses which were being accommodated at a property owned by a fellow trainer. When that property was sold, Warwick had to move on but when unable to find suitable stabling in the Hawkesbury Valley, he decided to call it quits. 66-year-old Warwick Hales grew up at Kellyville in the Hills District, where his father Jack ran a poultry farm and held an owner-trainer's licence. Already an accomplished show rider, Warwick was soon riding his father's horse in track work and the die was cast. Over four decades, he maintained a healthy strike rate from a team which rarely exceeded more than 12 horses. Owners were assured that those horses would be carefully assessed by an astute trainer who would place them where they had the best chance of earning prize money. A podcast is a wonderful medium by which we can catch up with old friends and reminisce with horsemen who've got a good tale to tell. And Warwick Hales, you certainly have that. Thanks so much, John. I can't believe it's four years since you legged a jockey into the saddle. Yeah, it only seems like 12 months ago, John, really, it, uh, because I still keep a, a keen eye on racing most days and mm. results and that on the computer at night. So you searched high and low looking for the right place and you couldn't come up with it. Yes, well, it was a combination, John, of a few things, um, mainly finding suitable staff, as in track riders, mm. um, because when you only bring your team down size to three or four horses, it's uh, it's difficult finding a rider that's going to come in and do them when they can ride a number of horses from one stable of a morning. Mm. So it does make the job a little bit difficult. So it was a combination of things. Yes, it was. You must get the occasional niggle when you think about uh, the thrill of leading a Group 1 winner back in, which you did three times. Is it remotely possible that you might have another crack one day? Yeah, well, look, it 
it took 10 years between the first and the second horse to, to win a group one. So time was starting to run out. I thought I'm not going to wait another 10 years to do it again. <laughs> hey, Warwick, as a participant in Pony Club for a, a very early age, I'm sure you'll join with me in saying that there is no better education in life for a kid. Uh, they learn how to respect and care for the animal. They learn the importance of practice and preparation. They learn discipline. But most of all, they learn how to win and lose. Absolutely, John. Look, it's a great foundation for the, the kids to start off in in any part of the industry, whether it be racing or um, the equestrian side of things. It's a, a great start for them. Inevitably, you progressed to the noble art of show jumping, and I've seen photos of you in action. This is perhaps the most spectacular of all the equine disciplines. Looking back now on those early days, how do you rate yourself? Uh, look, I probably didn't stay in it long enough, John, to continue going on, but a few of the riders that I was associated with, um, Vicky Roycroft and Colleen Brook, mm. they went on to um, the Great Heights. Um, so, yes, I didn't probably stay there in that section for long enough. No, that's right. It can take years, can't it? Oh, you never stop learning, improving in, in any part of that game. Mm. I mentioned in the intro that you rode work at Hawkesbury for your dad, which ignited the spark that saw you gain an amateur jockey's licence. You were too heavy to try the pro ranks, but you just wanted to give it a little try in the amateur ranks. Well, it, it started a little bit before then, John, when my dad bought a, a, mare, a mare with a file at foot and we broke it in and sent it into Ray Guy to be trained. Mm. And the first time I went into those stables, I thought, this is where I want to be. Really? And... Uh, Dad wouldn't let me leave school to go there, so we um, we finished the schooling and then I moved down and uh, and started working for Ray Guy and, and, and learnt a little bit more about riding track work because uh, I'd never been on a racehorse before and mm. not riding short and holding the reins a little different. And, and so that's where it started. You tell me this was around the time Ray had a brilliant two-year-old in the place called Sovereign Slipper, who'd won a silver slipper and actually ran third to John's Hope in the Golden Slipper of 1972. He was a very fast horse. Yes, he was in the stable at the time. Um, I remember Billy Kamer used to ride him and hmm. he didn't sort of seem to ride a, a real lot of horses for the Ray guy, but he was the rider and... Um, he was probably the star of the stable when I was there, John, even only being a two-year-old. Mm. You were anxious to learn about every aspect of the industry and you even spent some time at the Jason Lodge Stud at Park Lee uh, along Sunny Holt Road there where a man called Norm Williamson stood some very handy stallions. That's right, John. We, um, we had a couple of mares and... Um, we decided that we wanted to send them to a, a stallion called Royal Yacht. Mm. And we went up and inspected him. And we didn't so much meet Norm, but um, another guy called Greg Hogan, who mm. became a really great mate and finished up being the best man at my wedding. 
Goodness me. And, uh, to learn a little bit more about the, the stud side of things, um, mm. I got a, a job there of an afternoon after school, um, just watching to see how it all took place. And that was uh, a tremendous amount of experience there, game. Now, this was the point in your life where you were toying with the idea of becoming a trainer. Now, there were two horses on that stud, Jason Lodge, which had been tried by Theo Green, and you must have dropped a hint to Norm Williamson at some stage. Well, it was more so, Greg, um, being very friendly with the some people called Smiths that lived at Dural, and they were clients of, of Theo Green's, and um, they weren't the t- couple of horses they had with Theo at the time weren't sort of doing very well, and Greg put it to them to to give them a go with a provincial trainer with, with me in mind, of mm. which that's what finished up taking place. Now, one of those horses became your first winner. That's right, um, Royal Musketeer. Um, that was at Hawkesbury, and uh, Kevin Moses was the jock. Yeah. And you wouldn't have called Bart Cummings your uncle. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Now, Warwick, I, I may, may have jumped ahead of myself a little bit here. We're getting back to your track work days and your successful application for an amateur jockey's licence. You rode in half a dozen picnic races, including, not that this was a picnic race, but you had the great honour to ride in the famous Corinthian Handicap, a race for amateur jockeys staged by the AJC for many years at the bank holiday meeting in August. Every amateur jockey in the state wanted to be in it, but only a precious few made it. What did you ride? Well, I rode my dad's horse, who we had with Ray Guy in the very beginning, a horse called Big Noise. Mm. Uh, He never actually won a race, John, but my dad wanted me to have a ride in that Corinthian race, and really the horse was so far outclassed being a maiden in an open hand. Um, we, we were 100 to 1 before the jocks even got on, you know. Yeah, of course. That's how it all finished up. So Warwick Hales rode in a Corinthian handicap at Randwick on the 7th of August, 1972, finishing with the tail enders on a maiden against uh, open class horses. That race was won by Bias Bay, ridden by Mr D Maguire, I was talking to uh, Hannah Hibbert of the Australian Turf Club the other day, Warwick, and she came up with a little bit of history uh, regarding the Corinthian. A race called the Corinthian Plate was a one-off. It was run in November of 1894, and then it disappeared. It was reintroduced between 1906 and 1912 when it was run on Australia Day, and then the bank holiday version kicked off in 1949 and went right through to 1973, the year after you had your ride on Big Noise. Um, It it seems that the betting turnover on the Corinthian didn't warrant uh, the Australian Jockey Club retaining it on that bank holiday program. No, well, John, pretty hard for the punters to um, to be able to assess the form on, on more so the riders, uh, and then secondly the horses, because they were mainly country horses that ran in that race. 
Now, you learned the basics of poultry farming from your dad and you later bought five acres at Kellyville and you went into the business yourself. You were there for about 10 years, obviously sneaking up to Hawkesbury to work your horses a few days a week. That's right, John. Um, My dad passed the the farm over and sold me the licence, so I relocated the farm to my own place Mm -hmm. and uh, we, we built it up and we had a licence for 20,000 chickens mm. and I probably farmed that for eight to ten years. Mm. And in the meantime, having, you know, three or four horses in work and we just float up to Hawkesbury probably three times a week for pace work and gallops. And the writing became on the wall that uh, to stay in the game, you had to get bigger. And we didn't really want to um, extend the poultry farm because they were going to dereg regulate the licensing mm. so there was no way we could have competed with the bigger people and uh, we decided to sell the license and uh and and concentrate on the training of the horses which was when warwick 88 oh uh, in and around then yes that's mm. when we moved up north richmond we we got a 25 acre property there just vacant land mm. there and we had to start from scratch and build the the, the stables and yards and the house, everything, right mm. from scratch. And how many horses did you kick off with? Oh, probably 10 up there. Mm. Um, that was where it was good in a way with the uh, the poultry farming in Kellyville. We we built up a little bit of a clientele of uh, poultry farmers that were keen in, in racing horses as well. So mm. we um, we didn't start off with, with not having any uh, client backup. Yeah. You got a really nice horse not long after you started by the name of Master Gloss. He had six owners, he won seven races, he ran 12 placings. He won one at Randwick, one at Canterbury, one at Wyong and four at Kembla Grange. He was a nice horse. I remember him well. Yeah, he was a really nice little horse and he was mainly made up of owners that were in the poultry business and um, naturally we started going to the yearling sales the first uh, couple of years and um, I had him picked out. He was sort of recommended to me really by Eva Langworthy. Mm. Often brought yearlings down each year, mainly the the classic sales she targeted. Mm. And she recommended him to me and he was buying a new season sire called Shining Finish. Mm. And we got to the sales and looked at him. He, He was just a really nice, neat little horse and and uh, Eva said, look, you, you couldn't go wrong with him, Warwick. So we we paid probably 10000 for him just off the top of my head, which was, you mm. know, enough money in those days. Seven wins and 12 placings. He more than recouped his purchase price. Adrian Robinson won a race on him. Rodney Quinn won a race on him. But Rod Hardwick had the most success on Master Gloss. He rode him in five wins. Gee, yeah, no, well, look, I couldn't tell you, John, you, you must have all your, your facts and figures correct, but yeah, Rodney Hardwick did, I remember he rode him quite often, mm. uh, gave Adrian Robertson his first city winner as a jockey, mm. uh, winning that David Green handicap at Ramwick. Yeah. You've got yeah, to, he su- was, sorry? He was a lovely little horse, easy to train, good doer, easy to ride, you could do anything with him. 
You got a surprise visit one day, Warwick, at your Kellyville property from the late Ray Summers, a well-liked, well-respected businessman who was the founder and the managing director of Summertime Chickens at Galston. Now, thoroughbred horses were Ray's greatest passion. He had a stud farm at Glossodia, where he stood a few handy stallions. He raced many horses with Ray Guy as his trainer, and he was a great student of bloodlines. How did your association begin with Ray Summers? Through the chooks? Well, it, it was in a way, uh, John, but look, I just got a phone call out of the blue from a lady telling me she was Ray's secre- Ray secretary mm. and he would like to come and meet me on the following Sunday, Ray giving me some fillies to train. Mm. I was... I was polite at the time, but after I'd hung up, I just thought it was one of my mates playing a bit of a prank on me. So I didn't take any real notice of it, waiting for it to come to light at a later date, of which it did, because on that following Sunday, this jag came in with RS number plates on it. Well, <laughs> it was Ray Summers. Mm. Now, I wasn't really prepared for him having everything spick and span in the stables and mm. I told him the story on meeting him and, you know, he had a really good laugh, but he said, no, this is really all serious, son, he called me. Mm. He said, let's come and have a look at your stables, which we did. Mm. And his plan was to give me some fillies that weren't doing quite as well in the city environment with, with Ray. Mm. Got Phil, and that's how it all started with Ray Summers. Mm. And well, one of those fillies was called Lady Bureaucrat. She won five races, all on metropolitan tracks, and you slipped her to Melbourne on one occasion for a mare's race down the straight, and she ran third with Darren Beedman on board. Yeah, that's right, John. She um, she was a, a real sort of a bulky sprinting-type filly, and I think Lenny Beasley used to ride her a little bit, mm. uh, but it was when, at that time when I took her to Melbourne, it was when... That was probably Darren Beedman's last meeting as a as a rider before he went to the church. Mm. And he approached me about riding her, and naturally I said, "Yeah, I'd love you to ride her." Mm. And uh, yeah, it was she was she was probably just a little bit outclassed in that race, but she still went very well. Got a check. She did running third was okay. Now Warwick, there was a great character called Fred McDonald in Sydney racing in the nineteen eighties. He raced a number of horses with Ray Guy, including a very good horse called Nordic Prince, whose wins included a missile stakes. Now, Fred sent him to stud later, and one of his foals was a very small cult out of a mare called Trialia. He didn't attract a single bid at the sale, and Fred gave him away, gave him to a man called Jack Yorry, who had been in the ownership of Nordic Prince, how did you get into this story? John, um, Jack Yorry was um, in the poultry business and actually on the board, the, the egg board. Mm-hmm. One of my friends, and he approached me uh, about giving me a horse and I said, oh, how's all this going to take place, Jack? He said, well, Fred, my, one of my business partners in the, in a, in the meat industry, he owns... Nordic Prince, and he's got this 
Colt that he wants to give me because he's had him in a couple of sales and he didn't attract a bid. So it didn't sound real impressed, but I said, well, send him down, Jack, and we'll have a look at him and assess him and we'll go from there. Well, he arrived, John, and we weren't too impressed. He was <laughs> undernourished and little and skinny. And yeah. So I thought, gee, we've got our work cut out here. So we uh, we got him going and then put him out and brought him back and put him out and brought him back. Mm. And uh, look, he was a very athletic, highly strung too. Mm. So um, anyway, he seemed to progress and progress. And uh, we gave him a jump out one morning at Hawkesbury and, geez, he went really, really super. Mm. So from there, I think he, he may have even had his first start at Canterbury. He was going that well. Mm. And um, he duly got the money. He won five of his first eight, including a sequence of four straight, before finishing unplaced in the Villiers of 88. Then he had a spell, after which he ran out of a place twice, before winning at Randwick, and then you headed off to Brisbane for a three-race campaign. Rodney Quinn had been riding him in the early stages but couldn't go to Brisbane and Stephen Schofield took over up there. He ran well in those three races without winning and then on the way home you stopped off at Grafton and you covered all X's by winning the South Grafton Cup and winning it easily. Yes, well, he um, he did have those four straight wins in a row, John, and a couple were at Gosford, those, um, I think they were 15,000 intermediates they were called back in the day. Then the third win was that Rose Hill, he broke the track record. Mm. Then the 1,500 two weeks later, and we thought we'd have a crack at the Villiers, but he just wasn't quite strong enough at the 1,600. But then coming home from Brisbane, well, the, the opposition in that South Grafton Cup wasn't as strong as what we'd met in the Villiers, and he um, he won that quite easily. Well, he came back in the autumn of 1989 for five runs. He won one of them, a listed race at Canberra, followed by a freshen up and then back to Brisbane you go. Rodney Quinn couldn't make 51 in the Group 1 Castle Main, so back on went the Beaver, Stephen Schofield, and you bagged a great win at the elite level, beating a very good horse in Planet Ruler. He was he was a very good horse, John. Getting back to that race he won at Canberra, uh, I think that was called the National Sprint. Mm. If you go look at the horses that ran in that, that could have been one of the strongest fields he'd met up and up until the um, the Doomden Ten Thousand. Mm. But uh, yeah, that first Group One Doomden the Doomden Ten Thousand was was great. Well, he didn't win again after that in nine runs. So you looked after him in that 12 months. He didn't he didn't over-race him. And he only got 52.5 in the Castle Main the following year. Stephen Schofield again was his jockey and this time he beat two very good locals, Barossa Boy and Tiny's Finito and Warwick Hales had another group one on the CV. Yeah, well, I've got to sort of mention Mick Dittman here, John. Mm. Because after he'd won that first Doomed in 10,000, it sort of seemed to go off the boil a little bit. 
and we ran him in a in a good race at Gosford one day, and Mick Dittman did ride him. Mm. And not that he sort of was disgraced, but I just said to Mick, where do you think we should go with this horse? He said, well, look, why don't you just do exactly what you did last year and have another crack at the the doomed in 10,000 again. So we mm. took that forward, and as it turned out, it was the best bit of advice I could have ever been given. Mm. He didn't win again in another nine runs after that second Castle Main Stakes, but he was in top grade by now, Warwick, every time he lined up, and it was tough for him. But what a job he did, $692,000 30 years ago, and we're talking about a horse that nobody wanted. Well, when when he won those races, John the handicapper got to him a little bit, and he was um, naturally running in elite company, and he he just wasn't big and strong enough to carry that, that extra little bit of weight. Well, just pause for a moment, Warwick, and clear a commitment on the podcast. Back with you after this. New South Wales TAB punters, here is your chance to share in $1.3 million in prize money when the Kosciuszko is run at Royal Randwick on October the 17th. You could share in the ownership of one of the 14 runners in the world's richest race for country-trained horses. You're in the running if you purchase a $5 ticket via the Tab app or at your local TAB outlet or enter as many times as you like by purchasing multiple tickets. Ticket sales close on September the 7th and 14 winners will be drawn on September the 9th. If your name or the name of your syndicate is drawn, you'll then have the opportunity to select a horse to race in your entry. Then your negotiating skills will be put to the test as you endeavour to reach agreement with the owners regarding a prize money split. Bell Flyer won it in 2018, Handle the Truth won it last year. You could share in the ownership of the 2020 Kosciuszko winner when the big race is run at Randwick on October the 17th. Tickets are available right now via your Tab app or at your local TAB outlet. You tell a great story about the 1995 Wellington boot meeting. The great English jockey Lester Piggott was on a world farewell tour which included a couple of New South Wales country meetings. Now, you were approached by, I think, his Australian manager at the time to put him on a mare called Carrioy Rose in the main sprint race on Wellington Boot Day. John, Peter Myers, a Randwick trainer, mm-hmm. rang me one day out of the blue. We had a bit of a mag. He said, look, Warwick, I'll tell you the main reason I rang. I see you've got Carrioy Rose nominated for a race at Wellington. I said, yeah, mate, I'm not quite sure if we're going yet, but look, it's a nice race for her and the owner's got some connections up there and that's the main reason we're going. He said, oh, right. He said, would you consider putting Lester Pickett on? <laughs> well, I had a bit of a, a gap then I, while I was getting my breath and said to Peter, mate. You said, you give, said me, give me 24 hours. Yeah, yeah, you said <laughs> He said, and he told me the story, he said, look, Lester's doing the world trip and he uh, coming here and his main target is to, to ride at some of these country meetings. So I said, mate, it'd be fantastic. Yeah, for sure, he can he can jump on. And uh, of which he did. 
that uh, we got a little bit worried just after the start. I was so used to seeing this filly jump and lead and the jockey's really swinging on her to try and hold her back to the rest of the field. And you told him that, of course. Oh, they were in the instructions. I said, lead. Mm. Look, this filly just jumps and runs, so just try and keep her balanced and, and keep hold of her head uh, so she doesn't run herself into the ground. So Lester just looked at me and looked the other way mm. and uh, they jumped out of the barrier and, John, she was two lengths last. <laughs> well, that didn't sort of uh, look too good. I thought there's got to be something wrong with her. Mm. And uh, coming down into the turn, he... He actually reined her up because she, there was a loop in the range. He didn't even have any contact with her. God. So he's reined her up and they've got around the turn and he turned around he put walloped her with a couple right on top of the tail and, God, she found a few lengths in a matter of a few strides. And that whip he used was like a small sapling, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was. But uh, she just went under, John. She ran second. Yeah. So that was your encounter with one of the world's greatest jockeys, still alive in England, well in his 80s, and I think his health is reasonable. Yeah, I think so, John. I, I haven't heard much about Lester since then, but, mm. yeah, it was uh, an honour to meet him. He won nine English derbies. How'd you like that on your CV? Uh, yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> Ray Summers was the central figure in another wonderful surprise to come your way around the turn of the millennium. He bred a full brother to Lady Bureaucrat, which he entered for the English Classic Sale in 1997. The cult was by no means the perfect specimen, and he was passed in at $14,000. Now, Ray got you to help him syndicate this cult by bureaucracy, and you got him to train he was a different type to lady bureaucrat, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a big, big scopey sort of horse, John. Big, long striding horse and twice the size of, of lady bureaucrat. Mm. And uh, I sent him to Robbie Horn to break in, who was doing my horses at that time. And he, um, he had this great big sway back and uh, offset straight in front. Um, yeah, not... Not a, a perfect confirmation we would uh, hope to get, but anyway, we, we managed it and um, we got him going, a beautiful horse to ride, beautiful big long striding horse. Mm. And uh, his gallops were quite impressive. I took him to Rose Hill for his first trial. Mm. Lenny Beasley jumped aboard and uh, my instructions were, like most times, John, just let them go around, educate them and teach them a little bit, uh, which he did. He just went round and finished sort of midfield. But Lenny came back in and said, look, Warwick, this horse, you probably won't believe me, but I'm telling you, this will be the best horse you've ever trained. So he's a good judge, L. Beasley. Oh, well, I thought, gee whiz, they're, they're big words, Lenny. Mm. We've only just cantered around on a barrier trial. But he said, look, I'm telling you. So we probably gave him another trial after that, John, of which he probably went the same. So um, we finished up. I think we took him to Hawkesbury for his first start. Mm. I probably shouldn't have run him because it was on that inside grass track. Mm. He'd get lost on that. 
Well, it was just too tight for him. He's such a big, mm. long striding horse. He was ne- never on the track. And he ran second. But still a good run. Well, you were very patient with him. You stopped and started and freshened him many times. Took him a long time to win his first eight races. Mind you, there were a couple of listed races uh, in that eight. But your patience was finally rewarded in the winter of 2002 when, as a late six-year-old, he reeled off a brilliant Queensland treble. Yeah, we, we picked out three races, John, which I thought he'd be suited to run in, uh, distance-wise, 1,400, 1,800 and the 2,200. Mm. Yeah, the Sir Burn Hart Group 2, the Hollandale Group 2 and the Group 1 Doomben Cup, ridden in all three by Adrian Mouse Robinson. It was a terrific kick along for an underrated rider. Yes, well, Mouse was making, we called Adrian Mouse in and around the stables and he was making one of his, um, come another comeback after, you know, injury and that. Mm. And he started writing a bit of work for me and uh, he was riding this big fellow and it was when I was going to run him, I think, in the Villiers. And naturally, we had to sort of keep Lenny Beasley on because he'd been winning the races on him in Sydney. Mm. But chose to ride the favourite, the horse coming over from New Zealand, which paved the way for for Adrian to get on. And um, he got a little bit lost in the Villiers. But uh, anyway, we went on. I think he probably won his next start. I think might have been the Frank Underwood Cup. Mm, it was. Yeah, at Rose Hill. Mm. And... Uh, and that's how Adrian's got to, to get back on the hall. Well, after he won that Doomben Cup, your heart stopped when you heard the siren sound and the announcement boomed over the public address system that Starthy Katsidis, rider of the runner-up Gal Roof, had lodged an objection. That'd try your nerves out. Certainly did, John. <laughs> mm. <laughs> It after sort of leading the horse back down the race, you know, as as you do in those races, and everybody uh, congratulating, and and then that siren goes off, and you think, gee whiz, all this could come to an abrupt end. Mm. But anyway, we went in and uh, we had a fair hearing. Uh, Ray Murray he chaired the uh, the protest, and uh, luckily it uh, it got dismissed. You did a wonderful job with those two horses, Prince Trialia and Mr Bureaucrat. One was given away, the other was passed in at 14,000. You won over 1.5 million with those two horses all those years ago. This is all um, really good, John, but we mustn't forget the the support that made all this happen. Uh, The staff, you know, the track riders... Your family sort of um, go without a lot because you're, you're not at home, you're away. Mm. Um, yeah, there's many people you've got to thank. It's not just you being the trainer. There's all the people in the background that you, you, you've got to um, you've got to thank. All following your directions, which were obviously spot on. Now, one final story, and this is my favourite story from the Warwick Hale scrapbook. You were at a spelling farm one day in the Hawkesbury Valley and your attention was drawn to a chestnut horse in a yard 
who was scouring uncontrollably, and he had been for quite some time. And you learned that there was a possibility he might have to be put down. You were then told that chestnut horse was Straussbrook, who'd won a Group 1 George Ryder, he'd won a Group 2 Canterbury Stakes, he'd won a Pago Pago Stakes, and about 450000 Now, before you left that spelling farm, you were asked if you'd like to have a crack at getting him right. Is that how it happened? That's exactly right, John. We, we were over there looking at a horse called Digger Jack, I think. He was a, an opera prince. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so we was Straussbrook. And that's right. Mm. We uh, we wanted across and had a look at Straussbrook, and he uh, he was just skin and bone. He, you know, he looked absolutely terrible, and scouring really bad. The owner said, "Would you like to have a crack at him because he's just standing here, virtually, you know, going to waste." So we um, we said yes, of course, and I brought him home, and I started doing a little bit of research on some of the um, the articles that I'd read with people that had horses with this same problem, and the first one being a trainer from Maylong called Trevor Dolan. He had a horse called Tolmax. <laughs> the the Maylong Mud Eater was Tolmax's, oh, and a good horse. Yeah, that's him. Well, he, uh, he was such a really nice man, and he gave me all these little remedies and things to try, of which... The main one was the um, was the clay yeah. that he got from out there in the mines where they they make those clay pipes. Mm-hmm. So we uh, he brought me a, a great big bag to Bathurst races one day of Molong clay. Yeah, it took took two men to lift this bag of clay. Goodness me! And I used to crush it up with a little bit of railway line on the concrete and mm-hmm. make it in powder. Yep. And we'd mix it with apples. Crushed apples. Crushed apples. Goodness me, it wouldn't look too good. It didn't look real flash. <laughs> it looked too appetising. But yeah. he uh, he got to eat it after a while, and we tried lots of other things too. John um, Percy Sykes gave us a few little tips that what they did with tulip. Mm. Um, there was something he he used to use something green that. Uh, that didn't that didn't help us at all. Uh, no. So we we just concentrated on that uh, the Tolmax uh, diet, and uh, look, after a little while, it all all come good. He, the horse came good. And you tell me it was a hell of an occasion when you walked into his yard one morning and his droppings were firm. Yeah, yeah, you're used to seeing it all sprayed up around the walls. Goodness me. Yeah. yeah. Look, he obviously wasn't as good as he had been, but you got him back to the races knowing he'd get plenty of weight in whatever you ran him in. You started him nine times and you actually got him to win a 1,600-metre open handicap at Hawkesbury. He had 59 and a half in that. Rod Hardwick was his rider and Straussbrook was back. That One of your great achievements, Warwick. Well, thanks, John. Yes, it was. It was just... Uh Time and patience, really, and um, and a little bit of guidance from a, a from a few of our, our racing mates. But look, he'd um, he'd been off the scene for so long, John. He'd um, he'd become a little bit cultish as well. Mm. So his mind wasn't a hundred percent on being a racehorse. 
So um, I think Ronnie Quinton rode him for me one day at Rose Hill. Mm. And he said, look, Warwick, he said, you've done a good job with him, but look, his mind's not quite on the job. And Yeah, not putting in. No, it might be time to, to, um, to make some other arrangements with him, which, which was good advice as well. Mm. Well, you performed three miracles in your training career, in order, Prince Trialia, Mr Bureaucrat and Straussbrook. And uh, I'll bet your mind uh, wanders back to those wonderful days, often. Uh, they were great days, John, but um, really enjoyable and it's good to reminisce and, and, and go back over them like it is with you here now. You exited the scene four years ago uh, with some very distinguished achievements to your credit, but most importantly, Warwick, you terminated your training career with the respect of all sections of the racing industry, and it's a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much, John. I really appreciate it. And the podcast was produced by Supernova Seven. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress.